This is Over the Ledge. On 98.1 WQAQ. Welcome back to another episode of Over the Ledge on 98.1 WQAQ. I'm your co-host, Connor Core, alongside Cameron Lavasser. Cameron, how are we doing on this rainy and chilly uh, Monday afternoon? Yeah, I'm doing great, Connor. The weather's not the weather's been all right today, but you know, I'm I'm feeling better than the weather. How you doing? I'm doing outstanding. You know, this it was Easter weekend, so we had the great privilege of having a three day weekend, if you will, even though it was quite literally only had a Friday off. But um we had a you and I got the opportunity to, uh, you know, have a crossover event, if you will. You decided to come home to, with to my house for the weekend on in Pennsylvania. Do you wanna, you know, how was it? Like, was it worth not staying in your dorm for three days? Or Yeah, it was, it was a great weekend. I'm glad I didn't have to stay on campus all weekend, not being able to go home. So, I mean, it, it was fun the three days that we were there, and I'm, I'm, I'm really thankful you guys are let me come. Yeah, my, my mom has been talking to me about it for, like, the last two weeks. Hey, does Cameron want to come? come? Like, and I was like, you know, I haven't, I have asked him. He hasn't really gone, given me a straight answer yet. I'll keep following up with him, but I don't want to be too nagging about it, so... My mom always said she was a people pleaser, and I hope she pleased you this weekend with all the great food that we had before we had to come back to the cafeteria food at Quinnipiac. So. Yeah, it was definitely a fun weekend. <laughs> <laughs> so just to start off the episode, we had uh, the privilege of interviewing uh, a very unique inter- have a very unique interview, Cameron. You kind of set it up so you didn't want to intro it while I uh, get the audio started up. Yeah, last week we sat down with Oz, Sa- Oz Sailors, who's, who's kind of a trailblazer for women in baseball. She played collegiate baseball. She played professional baseball. So we sat down with her. We talked about her collegiate and pro career and then a little bit about what she's doing now. And I think without further ado, we're going to throw it to that interview. Like always, we'll play the first 10 minutes or so live on air. And then if you want to listen to the rest of it, it'll be up on Spotify and Apple Podcasts when this is posted on Wednesday. Welcome back to episode 27 of Over the Ledge on 98.1 WQAQ. We're happy to be joined today by former professional and collegiate baseball player, Oz Sailors, who has been a trailblazer for women in baseball throughout her career. Oz, how are you doing today? I'm good. How are you? Great. Um, So, Connor, do you have anything to add before you jump right into questions? No, I just wanted to say thank you for the opportunity for us to interview you. It's uh, not every day that you get to interview someone across the country, but uh, with Zoom, we have obviously have this access, so I'm really excited about it. So starting off, I just kind of wanted to ask, what got you into baseball in the first place? I started when I was a little kid. Um, I had an older brother who was three years older than me, and he played t-ball. And one day, I guess his team didn't have enough players. I was still in diapers. And the coach at the time was the YMCA, like t-ball league. I was two and a half. And the coach at the time stuck me out in the field. And that was the first time I played baseball. I had this little plastic Spalding baseball glove um, that I carried around with me everywhere. And I just, ever since then, I just kind of never stepped away from the game. Yeah. So kind of just getting back to your name specifically, um, what kind of, what's behind the nickname Oz? I know that you, you, that's not your actual name. So I just wanted to clear that up a little bit for the people who may not know. So my real name is Ozlay. um, And that's just, it was a lot for people to say and baseball, everything gets shortened anyway. So everyone just started calling me Oz from the time I was in first grade and it just kind of stuck. Oh, so there's no like deciding factor, like when um, you might've done something on a baseball field or like got the nickname, just what they called you. Yeah. 
Do you think you can talk a little bit about your experience playing baseball in high school and some of the adversity that you might have faced there? Yeah, so high school was was the worst. Um, uh, growing up, you know, there wasn't a lot of girls playing baseball. I was the only one that you really saw, um, you know, in the area that I lived in. Um, but in high school, it was it was definitely the worst part of my career as far as what I've faced as far as resistance from my coaches and teammates. Um, so my teammates were, I mean, they were verbally abusive. They were physically abusive. Um, they turned the batting machine on while I was standing right next to it, picking up balls, the ball hit me in the head, that kind of thing. And the coach wouldn't do anything about it because he didn't really like the fact that I was on the team. Um, and so I ended up transferring high schools after my sophomore year. I know that I read several articles online that you were pressured by some to switch to softball and you even had division one offers. Was that something you ever even considered? No, I never played softball. And from the time I was in the seventh or eighth grade, the local community college coach would come watch me play baseball. And she said I would be a perfect fit for her softball program. And for me, I was like, well, how would you know that? I've never played softball in my life. How do you know I'm going to be any good at it? Um, so people had pressured me from the time I was in junior high or maybe even a little bit younger to switch to softball, telling me how good I was going to be and how I could play softball in college. And then my response was, well, I'm going to play baseball in college. Um, and most people, I'll say 99% of people didn't really believe in me. Um, and the person who did was my Team USA coach. Um, I made Team USA for the first time when I was 17. Um, and the pitching coach for Team USA was a scout for the Baltimore Orioles, and he was also NCAA Division I pitching coach. Um, and he told me, you know, like, you're small, but there's going to be a school somewhere that's going to want you on the team. And we ended up finding that school, and it was, it was a perfect match. It was meant to be, and, and my career kind of took off from there. Yeah, so obviously you're from Southern California. So when you found that school, it obviously wasn't across the country, but it was also upstate Maine. And you and I, we all both know that upstate Maine weather is a lot different than Southern California. Was there ever kind of a situation you were like, oh, I'm, I might be playing baseball in March when it's still snowing outside. Is that kind of ever a decision or would you, you just wanted to play baseball no matter what? I mean, I told myself I was going to play baseball whether or not I had to go to Antarctica and Northern Maine's same climate, <laughs> you know. <laughs> so I I went to the school as a senior in high school. Uh, the coach really wanted me to play for him. Um, so I took a recruiting visit and I went to Northern Maine in January. Um, and in Southern California in January, they say dress warm. So you wear like jeans and a hoodie. And so that's what I wore. And then I got to Northern Maine and it was... 11 below zero and I've never seen that before ever like I've seen snow but I've never seen I didn't know life got that cold to be honest um and the admissions director at the time had waited my flight was delayed because of a snowstorm and she had waited till almost midnight to pick me up and she had brought like a big LL bean puffer coat that I'd never seen anything like that before and a beanie and gloves and they were just like so welcoming and the university was so happy I was there and that there was a chance I was going to come from California to play baseball that it only took me 24 hours for me to decide that's where I wanted to spend the next four years of my life what was 
I know you talked about the weather a little bit, but what was the first winter there like for you, like the first full winter you were there coming from California? Well, the first winter I was there was actually like Northern Maine, like mildest winter in like a hundred years, but I still thought it was pretty bad. And I remember playing, um, I remember it was, I want to say it was like April and at Umpy, we like hardly ever got home games in on our actual field because there's still snow on the field in May. But for whatever reason, that year, the snow just melted early. And um, I remember pitching. I pitched seven innings in relief against SUNY Canton. And it was 16 degrees outside and snowing. And I was I was like, my arm feels like it's going to fall off. Um, so that was kind of like my first, like, real cold weather baseball experience. Um, but, you know, I was a part of the team. And. My teammates always made me feel like I was one of them. They didn't treat me any differently. My coaches didn't treat me differently. The school embraced it. And, and I didn't care how cold it was. Like after what I'd been through in high school, I just knew like I wanted to stay at Umpy. Can you kind of talk about your experience with the program there at Umpy as a whole? Yeah. So when I first came in, um, the first coach I had, Coach Saucier, he was the one that recruited me. Um, so I was there for two years, um, and I started off just playing baseball. And then by the time I was a sophomore, uh, Umpy does a really good job of recruiting its athletes to play multiple sports if you're athletic enough. And so by the time I was a sophomore, I ended up being like a three sport athlete. Um, so they asked me to ski on the cross country team, which is interesting because I'm from Southern California and go there. And also ran cross country and I played baseball and I saw the program, you know, really develop and um, the program was known for before I went there, the program was known for having no money. Um, they had been on ESPN because they were the farther most northern baseball program in the United States and um, someone had donated money for them to have lights so they could play night games or practice at night. And that was kind of what the program was known for. And, and while I was there, we ended up beating like the number nine ranked team in the NCAA. Um, and we ended up, you know, making huge strides to make it a respectable baseball program. So, so you kind of mentioned, you know, being a three-sport athlete and, you know, everyone at school here at Quinnipiac tells Cameron and I to like, you know, balance the, find the balance between student media and uh, doing classes. How are you able to find the balance being a collegiate athlete, playing three sports and also being a student? It was pretty hard. Um, yeah, it was pretty hard. I mean, you know, you, you definitely like uh, grew into my caffeine addiction while I was in college. Um it was pretty hard. There was a lot of nights where there's definitely a lot of all-nighters. Um, but the the school was the University of Maine press style is really uh, a really special place. And I feel like a lot of the students who go there play sports. And so their professors are very understanding. Like if you're away on a road trip, they gave you extra time to complete your work or you could always talk to them. And I, I never felt like they gave us too much of a workload and they were always there and they knew our, you know, we had such small classes that they knew our, they knew our needs and they knew when we were going on a baseball trip or going on a ski trip and they always worked with us. 
that first game that you pitched against UMaine and kind of breaking that barrier as the first woman to pitch in a D1 game, what was that like? What was that whole experience like? The first game, so the first time I pitched against UMaine, I was a sophomore, and it was cool. Um, you know, it was cool. And I think a reporter came from the Bangor Daily to talk to me after the game. Um, and I was a little nervous, but to be honest, we were already getting crushed. So it was a low pressure situation. So I knew like, even if someone got on base, they weren't going to steal off me. So I didn't have as many nerves, but when I was a senior, I had the chance to start against the main. And so as a senior, I started that game. Um, I was the only senior on the team and I ended up pitching six innings against them and only giving up three earned runs. So to be honest, even though we lost that game, that was one of the games in college pitching against a D1 school that I was like the most proud of. What was your reaction when you first got the news that the Hall of Fame wanted to put some of your items on display? I'm um, pretty sure I cried. Um, I remember um, we were on a, a road trip in North Carolina. It was my senior year. And we were on a road trip and my coach asked me to meet him in the lobby. Like immediately he texted me and said, meet me in the lobby ASAP. And I thought I had done something wrong. I was the only senior on the team and I was the only captain. And I thought maybe I had done something. Um, so I was a little nervous when I went to go talk to him. And then he's told me I need to talk to you about something serious. And then my stomach dropped like, oh no, what did I do? And then that told me and I'm pretty sure I just cried. It was a pretty, it was a pretty special moment. Yeah, so we've kind of been talking about like uh, you breaking barriers in baseball, but I don't know if you knew, but as of last night, um, there was a first first female baseball coach in the MLB game, MLB game, and that was Alyssa Nacken of the San Francisco Giants. What does it mean to you that more and more women are getting involved in like male dominant sports, not only like baseball but the NFL and the NBA? Uh, it's very meaningful. I know Alyssa. Um, you know, I do live in San Francisco, and the women's baseball community is very small so I'm not like you know BFFs with her or anything but I have talked to her and I do know her and I you know I'm so stoked for her that it was her that broke the barrier she's very deserving very humble person um but I think what it does now for for seeing that is it just normalizes it it's crazy to think of how far we've come you know when I was playing little league baseball high school baseball even college baseball I was the only one and, you know, and from 2011 to 2015, when I played, which wasn't very long ago, I was the only female playing college baseball. Right now, there's nine women playing NCAA baseball. You know, so it's just it's a, a testament to how far we've come and how open minded the MLB and, you know, the NHL, the NBA, the NFL have become to allowing women to be part of their part of the game. Uh, now, obviously, you're running your own baseball academy. Is is a part of that to try to facilitate that growth and, and get more women in the game or just grow the game overall? Yeah, for me, it's about growing the game overall. Um, one of my assistant coaches, um, you know, in my academy um, is a female, and she's the kids love her. And so we coach two of the teams we coach together. Um, and it's really cool to see that the kids don't think of us as like, oh, we have two female coaches. It's just that we're just their coaches. Um, so I do have a few girls that come in for, for lessons um, and, and who have played on my teams. Um, but I'm also a high school coach. And in the league that I coach in, in San Francisco, um, I have a girl on my high school team 
there's a girl, there's a team that's just across the Golden Gate Bridge and they have three girls on their high school team and they're three of their best players. Um, so there's almost a girl on every single one of the teams that we play against at the high school level, which um, really shows how far, you know, we've come, how accepted it is. Yeah, so not only you have your own program and academy at this point, you've been traveling across the world to play baseball. Did you ever imagine how where baseball would take you to where it would be global at this point? No way. I never thought it. Like, especially with how much resistance I faced in the United States, you know, I, I never would have thought that other countries had the opportunities that they did. Um, in 2019, I got to play in Japan. Japan had a women's pro league, and I was the only American woman you know, that got to play in that league. Um, and it was so cool to play there. And, you know, thousands of fans would come to the games and they wouldn't think of it as like, oh, this is women's baseball. It was just baseball. I know you played in Australia as well. What was that experience like? It was awesome. Um, it was the same thing um, in Australia. You know, it's just like in the U.S. how we have men's basketball, women's basketball and no one bats an eye. Um, in Australia, it was the same thing. There's men's baseball and there's women's baseball. And the women actually got a bigger fan base than the men. So it was, you know, it was an absolutely awesome experience. And they loved, their culture is very fun. It's very sport loving, very laid back. And they love bringing in players from the US and Canada. Um, and so it was a real special treat to be one of their players that they imported from another country because they really treated us special and they were very, very good hosts. So when you started playing professionally, like after college, did you know how long your career was going to last? You were just trying to enjoy every moment and opportunity that came across you. I was just trying to play every, every opportunity that I had. Um, and then, so I had played a year, pretty much a year or, or a little less than a year after graduation. And then when I was in Australia, I got a, a job offer for Major League Baseball. And I moved to China for 16 months and I played in the Chinese League and I ran the Youth Academy for Major League Baseball. And I was lucky enough to play professional baseball for five years, you know. Um, so I never really knew when my last opportunity was going to be, but I kept just, you know, playing for one more day. And when you play at that level, that's what you're playing for. You're playing, you know, hard enough that you still have a spot tomorrow. And, um, you know, yeah, I had no clue how long it was going to last. But it was awesome. You kind of talked about how the culture is different with women's baseball in other countries, that it's way more accepted. What do you think needs to happen in the United States for that to really take hold? It's hard in the United States because sports and money have such a correlation. And you see it even in the, in the, you know, in the WNBA, um, a lot of the players in the WNBA would make more money if they flip burgers, you know, like they get paid almost nothing. Um, and a lot of it has to do with advertising and, and fans. Um, so we need to do something as far as like investors um, pitching more money into women's sports to be able to pay, you know, female athletes uh, a living wage. And if we had that, I think the, women's baseball would really take off in this country and so would the rest of women's sports so baseball has been considered uh and has been said to be america's one of america's greatest pastimes 
Do you kind of agree with that statement or do you kind of disagree where, you know, baseball is just getting started where it's going to continue to grow over the next, you know, 15, 20 years and well down the road? Um, I kind of feel both ways. I feel like America, you know, baseball was America's pastime. And if you look at the history of both men and women in baseball, um, you'll see that through every crisis this country has been through since the 1900s, baseball was the one thing that held us together. Um, even in World War II, when all the men went off to fight the war, it was the All-American Women's League, um, you know, that kept, that kept baseball going. Um, I think now the game has changed and it's became a little flashy and a little new school. And so more kids are watching it because of the changes Major League Baseball is making. And that will have more people, you know, watch the game, make it more appealing to to people who don't really understand baseball, um, you know, to, to become fans. Um, but I think that there's, you know, it's always going to be an important part of our culture and our traditions. Touching a little bit on Major League Baseball, do you have a team that you follow and you support? Obviously, you're from Southern California, or is it just you're watching and supporting baseball as a whole? Um, I appreciate the game as a whole. Um, this summer, uh, I'm going to be working uh, with the Giants um, on the youth development side. So I've come to know uh, that organization pretty well, and I respect the people in the organization and what they, um, you know, what they stand for as far as the community and making the community around them better. So I definitely respect the Giants and kind of root for them right now. Um, but I don't have a team that I hate, maybe besides the Yankees because I spent so much time um, you know, where everyone's a Red Sox fan. But I care more about the players and, and the organization and the people they are off. It makes it easier to root for them. Now, you kind of – we've been – keep mentioning that you've been a lot in the youth development program. Did you ever kind of see yourself as kind of a teacher for the younger generation uh, for baseball? Or did you kind of just – it kind of just happened and now you're making basically a living off of it? Um, when I was playing college baseball, um, you know, I'd always get asked, you know, what do you want to do after college, um, when you're done playing? And I, I think I wanted to become, there was a part of me that wanted to become the first like NCAA division one baseball coach. That was, that was a woman, right. That was, that was the goal. Um, but then I realized like, it's really empowering to work with kids and it really brings everything, you know, full circle because I had so many kids that told, or I had so many coaches that told me like, you need to switch to softball. You can't play baseball as a kid and to see how that switched and how to see how all those little kids really respect me for what I've done on the field. Um, there's no place I'd rather be. My kind of last question here is that if you could give one piece of advice to young girls out there who want to follow in your footsteps and play baseball and take it to the next level, what would that be? Um, my advice to them is it doesn't matter how many people tell you, you can't do something. It only takes one person to give you an opportunity. Um, you know, when I was in high school, people told me I had a 0 0.0001 chance of playing college baseball and there was this and this and the school wasn't going to give me a chance, but it only gives it only the, the, the reality is it only takes one person to say yes. So never stop, you know, knocking on a door that your heart desires to go through because all it takes is one person to say yes. And that could change your life.
those are all the questions that I had for you. Um, Cameron, if you wanted to wrap it up for us here. Yeah, the, we really appreciate you for coming on. This was, it was awesome to talk to you. We, thanks for, thanks for doing this with us. Yeah, yeah thank you. Yeah, really do appreciate it. Uh, it's not every day that we get to talk to somebody who's broken so much uh, barriers and records as, as you. So we really do appreciate it. Yeah, we, we really we appreciate Oz for coming on. It was a great interview. Like we said, if you want to listen to the rest of that, go to our Spotify on Wednesday. But now we're going to change gears a little bit, and we're going to get into the NBA. Playoffs started this past Saturday after the play-in games. There isn't really much more to say. It's been, it's been, a, great, it's been a great few games so far. I think what I love about these playoffs is that, with the exception of maybe that the Raptors game and the, the, the Hawks game, every game is... Every game has been close. No team has laid down. No team. Every team is putting up a fight. Even the the lower seeds are competing with the top seeds. And I, it's I think it's going to be a great playoff run. Yeah, it's one of the great things about NBA playoffs. It doesn't matter like how much you may have seen like people not playing like as intense in the regular season with the eighty two game season. But you know, once mid April comes around, it's up to one hundred percent intensity all the time. All every game. And even in that, those like you mentioned, those one eight, those one seed versus the eight seed games, yeah, the Heat and the Hawks, it was a blowout on, in favor of the Heat. But like in that Suns and Pelicans game, they got it. They were sticking with them very often, and the Suns just had more durability. And I guess we'll just—that's a great transition to just start talking about the the season matchup, starting with the Suns and the Pelicans with the this first round matchup. So we're, just before we get started, we're going to go through every game and kind of you know say who's gonna finish out the series you know all the game all of the first games in the series have happened and we're gonna see where the rest of them play out so Cameron I got the Suns beating the Pelicans in four games I don't maybe five if the Pelicans get a win at home uh, maybe in like game three or four but you know Chris Paul has played phenomenal as well as Devin Booker but he said in his post game and we kind of noticed it watching the game yesterday that you know he played a facilitator's role like the old style John Stockton style point guards where they were passing and dishing to get his teammates open but they really took over in the fourth quarter and not really getting too tired because in the first three he kind of you know set himself up to be not as tired as the rest of the players so I got the Suns in four I don't see the Pel maybe five but um yeah I don't see the Pelicans making it past the first round against the best team in the NBA really yeah, I'm I'm also going to say Suns in four here. I mean, this is definitely a situation where the Pelicans can steal a game. They have the talent to to come back, and they, they almost did it in this game. They closed a 23-point deficit down to, like, six points at one point. They went on a massive run, but the Suns team is just too deep. Chris Paul went into his bag in the fourth quarter. He had 19 points, shot a perfect seven for seven. He had a career-high 30—or not a career-high. He had a season-high 30 points in this game. Complete dog in the fourth. It—, it there's no point where these this, the Pelicans are going to be able to win this series. They could take a game, like I said, but this, the Suns are too deep. When their back's against the wall, somebody's going to step up. It might be Chris Paul, it might be DeAndre, and it might be Bridges, it might be Booker. They have they have too many talented guys, and there's there's no chance they don't advance to the second round here. Yeah, they have a lot of options, and I think one of the biggest things is that you didn't mention was Mikel Bridges. You know, he was nominated for Defensive Player of the Year before, like right as we were coming on. Mar- Marcus Smart took that award, but um, those. It may sound a little corny or cheesy, but like I think those roots being in College of Villanova, the way Jay Wright coaches his team kind of helped him become the premier defender that he is, and he's starting to get the recognition now. And if he can just shut down CJ McCollum in that entire game, they don't have like a solidified number one score that like they do in Phoenix, where they have Devin Booker, they have Chris Paul, 
they have DeAndre in that they can turn to. Like, they have a lot of more options. And I think if they can just shut down CJ McCollum, that's going to be the biggest thing going into the, the series. Yeah, the Pelicans, to me, they have, a lot of, they have a lot of second pieces. They have a lot of guys who would make good second stars on teams. We saw that with CJ in, uh, in Portland for a number of years. Brandon Ingram could be a great second option for a team. I don't think he can... He can take over a game. I don't think he can do it like a superstar can, and I don't. I just don't think this Pelicans team is built to win in the playoffs. They got that plan win, and it's great for them. They have this playoff experience for such a young team, but they're not going to be able to make advance past this round. Yeah, it's definitely a, definitely a step in the right direction. It's just a matter of them finding the right pieces, and they're going to have to find a solidified score. We thought it was Zion, but we all know where that ended up. So, <laughs> so moving into the next game, the Mavericks and the Jazz, the 4-5 and five seed game. They'll be going up against the winner of the Suns against the Pelicans. This series really does depend on when Luka Doncic comes back because I saw on Twitter today that he's doubtful for game two, so we're just gonna, I'm just going to assume that he's not going to play. Um, so if, if he does come back in the next like game three or game four, I'm going to pick the Mavs to like, go in six or seven games. But if he doesn't, I think the Jazz are going to be able to win in six. You know, Do- Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Jordan Clarkson can lead the team through the first round. It's it's not when you think of the Mavericks, you don't really think of somebody that has is a scoring uh, prowess as Luka Doncic. So depending on when he comes back, it could be not looking good for the Mavericks. To me, the Mavericks, this Mavericks team this season, obviously they won over 50 games. They they put together a good season, but they've they've been one piece away from really being a solidified contender. And especially now with Luka out for games one, for game one, and more than likely game two, and we'll see about game three. I don't think they're going to have the ability to pull out the series without him. Um, Jalen Brunson and Spencer Dinwiddie, they, uh, here's a stat that I pulled. They had they shot 15 for 39 from the field in that loss. Those 39, those 39 attempts uh, were more than half of the field goals for Dallas in that game. So they're trying to combine, play the rule that, Lo- that Luka would play in a game, but they just weren't able to come through for it. They can't run an offense and control the game the same way that Luka can. I mean, the Mavs, the Mavs, the Jazz have a habit for choking second half leads yeah, yeah. and the, the Mavs really pushed them towards the end there but without Luka they're not they're not they're going to be able to steal a game or two but I don't think they'll be able to take the series in the end yeah if they don't have Luka they're not going to be able to get over that hump that is Utah they are the ranked the higher seed but you know it's one it's it's a lot like the 512 seed in March Madness where it's really you would think that the higher seed would always win but you never know what's going to happen it's not like the Mavs are usually a team in past where it's, they've had a lot of depth guys off the bench who can come in and really be a legit scorer for them, and they they really know how to share the ball well and like come from every angle. And one guy one guy can't score. Okay, we're going to give it to these two guys, and they're going to work tonight. But with Luca on this team, they they've really been running the game through Luca, and that's they've changed up their style of play. And without him in the lineup, I don't think they're going to be able to win a full series. They could steal a couple games, but in the end, I don't. This yeah. is again, this is a series that. It, if Luca is in, it's a toss-up. If not, I think it's a series that they they could pull a shocker. They could win it. I would I would be much I'd be very surprised if they did without Luca. Um, and at the end of the day, it's I I know I expressed this to you over the weekend, but I don't think that whoever comes out of the series will be able to get past the Suns regardless. Yeah. So I think it's I think it's a bit meaningless at the end of the day. Yeah, it's yeah. We were when we were watching this, you're like, yeah, I really don't care about this game because, like, is for exactly what you said the Suns are just overpowering, and we're going to see them in the Western Conference Finals. When you think of the Mavericks, like offense, you, you think of Luca, and then it drops off drastically. Yeah, you have Spencer Didwitty, who won Most Improved Player two, three years ago. 
within the last five years, but I don't. He didn't. He hasn't really blossomed into like a number one scorer that you can turn to when somebody like Luca goes down. So it's gonna be in, it's gonna be very dependent on whether he can come back or not. Um, and but if if he doesn't, and the Mavericks are gonna win this series, they really do need to go back to that old Maverick style where they're spreading the ball out. They're getting. It isn't it isn't a one dimensional game. They're getting scoring from all all positions, all guys up and through the lineup. So I I feel like that's the only way they can really get it done without them. Yeah, it's definitely gonna have to be a team effort to rely on if they're gonna want to get out of this first round. Moving into the three versus six seed, the Warriors and the Nuggets. I mean, in the game on when was it Sunday? It was Sunday, right? Yeah. Game one was Saturday. It was on Saturday. Okay, never mind. It was on Saturday. The Warriors are playing hot at the right time, and then I don't think the Nuggets have enough weapons to get it done. You know, they have the Joker and Nikola Jokic, but without Jamal Murray, I don't think he can carry it by himself. So that's why I'm going to pick the Warriors in five. You know, we kind of mentioned it earlier, but I think if the lower seed can get a game at home, it's probably going to push to five. But they're getting hot at the right time, like I said. Jordan Poole played outstanding in game one. He's, he's taking the pressure off Steph, Clay, and Draymond to play free and, you know, play that back star, backyard style of offense that Steve Kerr wants to play. Yeah, I mean, like you said, Golden State's been really hot. They won their final five games coming into the playoffs, and they just kind of kept rolling here. No Steph, no problem down the stretch, and they, they even showed that in this game. Jordan Poole had 30. He took the pressure off Steph coming back into the game, and it really raises the question now of heading into game two, whether they're going to start Curry or whether they're going to keep Poole in the starting lineup and, and let him ride that hot hand. Yeah, I think I think they're gonna. I think they would. It'd be best advised to leave Jordan Poole coming off the bench. I think he he fit well into that role, and it wasn't too much pressure for him. I know he played. He's been playing at Michigan in college, and he's been playing on the Warriors for a while now. But I think it'd be better if him, like he sees what's going on, how the game's gonna be played. He comes in and reacts to that, and goes off maybe in game two, like he did in game one. I think I think they should personally. I think they should keep him in the starting lineup. I think they should give Curry more time to heal. I think they should. I mean, he's hot right now. Why not? Why not let him ride it out and and keep shooting the lights out while he can? Yeah, I, yeah, they're definitely gonna have to start working Steph Curry back into the lineup. But um, yeah, I it really it's gonna work out for him either way if he comes off the bench or if he can continues to stay in the starting lineup. It'll definitely something they can rely on though. Moving it's into gonna that. be it's gonna be interesting for the future whether he continues to develop and whether this is a guy that they have to decide a couple years down the line whether they move on from Steph or whether they trade him for pieces if he continues to develop and. A star level player. Yeah, it'd be, it's definitely going to be interesting to see. I mean, yeah, like like you said, and looking at the Nuggets, um, Jokic doesn't have help on this team. Yeah, he carried them. He carried them to that the the fifth seed, right? Sixth seed. Sixth, sixth, seed, seed. sixth seed. He carried them to the sixth seed. Um, they, this is why he's the favorite for MVP right now because mm-hmm. he, they didn't have Jamal Murray, they didn't have Michael Porter Jr. except for like the first ten games of the season. The I think there's one video of him just slumped on the bench during this game, like breathing. <laughs> as heavy as I've ever seen a man breathe, and that really that really sums up the season for Nikola Jokic. He's carrying this Nuggets team. They, they, can't, they can't win. You can't win a playoff series against a team as deep as these Warriors with just one guy as good as Nikola Jokic is. And the Nuggets also in this game didn't do, themsel- didn't do themselves any favors. They missed a lot of easy shots. Um, Demarcus Cousins got himself ejected with two straight back-to-back texts. <laughs> yeah, Mike Malone. Mike Malone even said it. We said he said uh, after the game he said we can't beat ourselves and the Warriors in the same game, and we did that tonight. Mm-hmm. Or yeah, yeah, that's that was a quote. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't entirely make sense. I think I might have 
written it down wrong, but um, yeah, you get the gist of it. Yeah, and in that box score, I was looking at the um, the game. Nikola Jokic had 25 points and 10 rebounds, so he did average a double-double, and actually looking at it, Will Barton stepped up. He had 24 as well, but their plus-minus rating, they had the two hot... Will Barton and Nikola Jokic had the minus 19 and ni- minus 14 so they, they've been getting it done. They just haven't been as efficient, and that's where the if they're going to want to get back into this series, they're going to have to play a lot more efficient um, moving forward if they're going to want to even have a shot against the Warriors. Yeah, and then the Nuggets. That's they've been playing through Jokic all season. He's been, I mean, looking at his his uh, resume for MVP. They're nineteen point five points be- per hundred possessions. Like the net rating, better with Jokic on the floor than without him. So it's definitely a situation where they can't win without him on the floor, and he has to be more efficient. But I think, I think at the end of the day, this is the Warriors series to lose, and I think they take it in six. Yeah, and and, and honestly, that could help the Nuggets too, because they if they just play free with like no regard for human life, that they have nothing to lose, and that could help the Nuggets in the end. But the Warriors just have too much talent, and like you said, they have it's their series to lose, and I think they're going to be able to get done in five or six games, like you said. Mm-hmm. So going into the last matchup, the two seed versus the seven seed, the Grizzlies versus the Timberwolves. I think the Grizzlies are going to win in six. The Wolves surprised me in game one against the Grizzlies. Uh, they gave them a run for their money, and it sets up their series extremely well for the final however many games it goes out to. But I have the Grizzlies winning in six. Um, the Wolves have a bunch of guys who can play, and i got Carl Anthony Towns, D'Angelo Russell, and Anthony Edwards. But... The Grizzlies have been playing extremely well, and it don't seem to be stopping here. I'm I'm going to disagree with you there. This is this is a series that even before the Timberwolves won that first game, this is a series that I could see them winning. They they didn't exactly have the same caliber of off uh, regular season that the Grizzlies had. Obviously, the Grizzlies franchise record, 56 wins, fantastic regular season. They probably have the coach of the year in Taylor Jenkins, probably the most improved improved player in John Morant. He was he's been on another level all season. His his athleticism. I'm speaking fast today. <laughs> his athleticism has been on another planet. Um, but at the end of the day, they showed in that that first game why I think they can win this series. They they had those star players. Cat came back to life after the, his poor performance in the play-in game. Anthony Edwards has really found a shooting touch, and he's he's just he's on another level right now for a second year guy. He's going to be a superstar in this league. D'Angelo Russell Russell has been consistently great. The Grizzlies, the Grizzlies didn't play a bad game. They had guys put up high point numbers. They had guys play efficiently. It's it's just a matter of I think in this situation when it comes to crunch time, when it comes to do or die, I think the Timberwolves are the guys who want it more and they're going to be able to get it done. Yeah, and when we were watching that game too, I noticed that it was a game a lot of runs. I know the Timberwolves got out. I think it was like right around twenty points or something like that, and the Grizzlies had to claw their way back. No pun intended. But um, I think they're going to be. I think that was almost like a little bit of a wake up call. And I think Taylor Jenkins is going to be able to go to his team and be like, "Hey, we're the two seed. It's our series to lose. Like we have to show up and show out." And I think in game two when they respond, it might be it's going to be a different story for them. And like I said, like even you you mentioned it, like the T Wolves, they have a bunch of guys who have you know they have that dog mentality where they're going to be able to go out and win whenever they want to and in those clutch moments they're going to be able to show up and show out so i wouldn't be surprised if this game is if this series genuinely does go to seven games too uh it wouldn't be i wouldn't put it past this series but 
Yeah, I mean, at the end of the day, you you can't, despite what I'm saying, you can't, like, say that the Grizzlies won't win the series. They very well could. Mm-hmm. They hadn't played in a week coming into it, and I'm, I mean, Taylor Jenkins acknowledged that after the game. He said, we tried our best to stay ready, but it's been a minute since we played, but we have to come out ready to go. We didn't in the first quarter, and we paid for it. They had a really bad first quarter, and that's ultimately most of the reason why they lost that game. And I, I really can't get too ahead of myself here either because the Grizzlies did this last year the same way that the Timberwolves are doing it this year. They won two playing games as I believe they were, they were the 11 seed. Um, they came into the... No, it, it must have been the 10 seed. And they came into the, that first game against the Jazz in the first round. They they beat the Jazz. It looked like they were going to steamroll through the series and they proceeded to lose the next four games. So it's not... It's a situation where that could happen here, but in my head, in the way that I saw this game and the way that I've seen the season play out, I think the Timberwolves are going to take the series in seven. All right. Only time can tell, I guess. Moving over to the Eastern Conference, we got the one in the eight seed, the Miami Heat going up against the Atlanta Hawks. I mean, if any, if game one is rep- a representation of how this series is going to go, it's going to be the Heat in four. It was obvious that the Hawks didn't have another scoring option to rely on with Trey Young uh, not playing to his best performance, and it may, may have not have been because they just played two play-in games um, back-to-back like in the last five days. But it was very obvious that you know, when they were talking about how the Grizzlies had a week off before they had to play, the Heat did too, but it seemed like that Eric Spolstra is a good enough coach and there's a reason why he's Coach of the Year nominee that he was going to make sure his guys were ready for Game 1 that they didn't get upset in uh, Game 1 over the Hawks. Yeah, I think I don't think Game 1 is an indication of how the series is going to go at all. Trey Young is not going to... He had his worst game of the season. He had 8 points. He shot 1 for 12, 0 for 7 from 3. He had a season-high six turnovers. It's not going to happen again. The Heat were able to shut him down in this game. They were able to shut down. He's great off the pick and roll. They are able to shut down that offense. He'll find other ways to create create for himself, though, and he's going to score. He's going to score those big points. He's going to put the Hawks in a position to win games down the line here in this series. The Heat aren't going to be able to shut him down in every way that the Hawks come up with. And on the other side, Duncan Robinson is not going to have a perfect game every game in this series. He was most. He was a lot of the reason that they won this game. He shot nine for ten, had a franchise record eight eight threes in the game. He shot eight for nine. That's not going to happen again. There's a lot of things that the, it's that's a one off game, and I think every single other game in the series is going to be closer. I I think this game this series is honestly going to go to seven. I have a lot of belief you in Trey Young, but I I do think the Heat will pull it out in the end. I think their depth is going to come through, but I do think this is a series that'll go six or seven games. Yeah, I think the biggest concern for the Hawks is getting Clint Capella back because you saw a lot in the regular season where they'd run the pick and roll with Trey Young and uh, Clint Capella, and they'd, that'd make the defense more, like, respect one or the other more and give the other option a scoring opportunity. I think getting him back is going to be the biggest key for them, and I'm th- pretty sure he's not going to be... He, I saw on Twitter today he was doing... He was warming up inside the arena, but he was he was out for game two, so... I think getting him back is definitely going to help the Hawks, but I don't see it going very far. Maybe five or six games. I don't think it. I don't think it'll go to a game seven. For as good as Trey Young is, I don't think. I think the Heat and Kyle Lowry and Eric Spolstra, Bam Adebayo, Jimmy Butler, all those guys are going to be able to rotate in and out and guard um, all their scoring options, including Trey Young as well, to um, move on to the next round. I think if John Collins can become that consistent player that he's being paid all that money for and really get the ball near the rim and be able to convert. I think he can pose a real big issue for this Heat defense on the inside, and I think if he does that, this series can definitely go seven. Yeah, it's it's definitely going to be interesting. A lot of a lot of this, I mean, really with all these predictions, it's basically just off of 
you know, who's going to be available, who's going to be back. You know, players banged up all here and there, and on any given night, any team could beat anyone. So, I don't know. I think I think the Heat are going to be able to wrap this up in five or six games after originally saying four, after you posed a great argument, Cameron. <laughs> so, the Heat or the Hawks will be playing the 76ers or the Raptors, the four and five seed. I think this is going to be a toss-up. You know, we got Scotty Barnes going out, the Rookie of the Year uh, candidate, going up against the 76ers, um, Joel Embiid and James Harden and Tobias, Tobias Harris and all those guys. I, I have the 76ers winning in five, six games, somewhere in that range. Um, you know, James Harden seemed to have found his groove in Philly just as a whole night even in game one. Um, definitely playing a lot more free, and you can kind of tell in, like, the body language how much fun he's having with Joel Embiid. And, um, yeah, they have a lot of great chemistry, so I see the 76ers beating the Raptors because the Raptors, like, I was looking at their lineup. They only have, like, one or two guys that have the same, like, physical stature as Joel Embiid, and with him uh, banging down in the post every night that on those playoff games, there's going to be... They're going to get worn out pretty quick, and I don't see the Raptors being able to keep up with... Uh, the inside play of Joel Embiid. Yeah, I think this is another this is another series movie less so where game one isn't going to be an indication of the rest of the series. I think, I mean, Tyrese Maxey really took over this game. He had 21 points in the third quarter. He finished with 38 points. It was a pretty, it was a pretty record-setting game for him. Um, but I, th- I think at the end of the day, he's not going to do that again, and the Raptors are going to be able to adjust defensively here. Um, I, I think they'll be able to steal a game on the road, maybe definitely take a game at home, but I think this series does go to the Sixers and Six. Harden, James Harden and Joel Embiid make it really hard for teams to stay out of foul trouble, and we saw that in game run. Fred Van, Fred Van Vliet <laughs> and Chris Boucher both fouled out during this game. Yeah. They didn't foul out at all during the regular season. I think Pascal Siakam had four fouls as well. I mean, th- these are two guys that love to draw fouls, and they do it on a regular basis very consistently. Um, Harden or Embiid had like nine free throws in the fir- in the first half alone, and that that just that just signifies how this team plays, and they're going to be able to get to the free throw line. The Raptors, no matter what they adjust defensively, I don't think they're going to be able to stop those two guys from getting to the line, and that's going to make the difference in the series. Yeah, their tallest, the Raptors' tallest guy on according to ESPN is six foot nine, and the guy that the, their tallest guy is a rookie. And he's 6'9". So I don't think they're going to be able to... They can rotate in and out as much as they want to, but I think what it comes down to is them just having not enough size to play with Joel Embiid for five or six games and to pull it out to seven and try to get a win. But I think it's definitely going to be a a win for the 76ers to face off the Heat in the second round. Yep. So going from the... Going to the other side of the Eastern Conference bracket, the Bucks and the Bulls, three and six seed, respectively... I think the Bucks are going to win in five games, five or six games as well. It's going to be uh, it's going to be tight. The Bulls aren't gonna, definitely a team that's not going to shy away from a challenge. You know, it was an awful shooting performance for both teams last night. But I think it's just like what you've been mentioning with the East so far. It's not going to be a very good representation of how the rest of the series is going to go. Um, but I think the Bucks are going to be able to pull it out in five or six. Yeah, I mean. The Bucks team, they have, they have a lot of size. They have a lot of length. They're they're really able to to cause problems for this for this Bulls offense or this Bulls defense that's not particularly mm-hmm. the tallest. And we saw that to start game one. They they really pulled out ahead. I don't remember what the lead they had, but it was pretty massive. 
but the Bulls were able to pull it back. They didn't shoot very well, but neither team shot very well. Mm-hmm. The, it's that's that if the Bulls are going to win games in the series, that's how they're going to have to do it. They're they're an ugly team. They're a gritty team. They they grind out wins, and that's that's not the Bucks style necessarily. So that's that's how they're going to be able to beat them. At the end of the day, I don't I don't think this is a series that the Bulls can win. I have I have the Bucks in six, but if the if the Bulls are going to do something, they're going to have to grind out those wins. They're going to have to play those tough defensive games. They're going to have to make things get ugly. They're going to have to tie guys up. Um, that that's that's the only way that's the only way to b- beat this team. Yeah, I think even if you try slowing down one option for the Bucks defense for the for the Bucks offensive, like you slow down Giannis. Oh, we still got Chris Middleton to worry about. There's so many options that the Bucks have, and it's it really puts uh you know the entire playoffs to a I don't want, I don't want to say shame but like they're a good team that's at at three seed and they're gonna have one of the easier roads to the playoffs I mean they're play they would play Celtics and the Nets in the second round but you know in this first game I think they they'll be able to get it done in five or six games yeah I mean I I just think at the end of the day this Bucks team is too well balanced for this Bulls squad they started off the year really hot they kind of faded down the stretch and. I don't think I, I like the team. I don't think they have what it takes to win this series. Yeah, I think they need. I think that for the Bulls, if they don't pull out this series, I think either in free agency or in the draft, they're gonna have to either bulk up inside, like find a you know a decent sized player to fit their style of play and be able to compete with you know the Bucks, the Seventy Sixers, who have all these big guys who can who are very versatile. And if they're gonna want to get back to the championship ways that they had in the nineties with Michael Jordan. So the last matchup in this uh, Eastern Conference and the playoffs as a whole, the number two Celtics going up against the number seven Nets. I'll let you start this one. I mean, you're, you're being the Celtics fan uh, watching the game. I'll get your initial thoughts and pl- things for the rest of the series. Yeah, flat out, I think the Celtics team is just full of guys who want it more. I mean, Jalen Brown, there's a cold pregame where Jalen Brown said he was had been struggling to sleep for the past week because he was so excited to compete in the playoffs, and he... He showed that in game one. He really has that compete level. So does every guy on this team. I mean, the Nets fought hard. Kyrie was incredible in this game. Mm-hmm. Um, maybe not defensively on that last play. But, <laughs> uh, but he, he was incredible. Kevin Durant really struggled. But I, I just feel like the Celtics, team's, the Celtics team want it, wants it more. I don't know. I don't know what you want to add to yeah, that. Yeah, I, I have the Celtics winning. You know, coming into it, you thought kind of thought that the Nets were going to be able to be almost misrepresented by the playoff seeding that they got being the seven seed, you know, because with the, all the talent that they do have there. Uh, but I think the Celtics are going to win in probably five or six games, like I mentioned, like I keep mentioning with the rest of the matchups. But if the Nets are going to want to get back into it, what they're going to have to do is, you know, rely on who's going to step up. And it's got to be either Kevin Durant or Kyrie Irving going for at least 30 every night and to even try to get a win. And, um, yeah, I the Celtics have like you said, they just have a bunch of dogs on the team. Marcus Smart in particular, I've been giving him a lot of, you know, I wouldn't say hate, but like kind of criticism over the last few days. But then after watching Game One and him just winning Defensive Player of the Year this year, this year, he's earned my respect, I guess, over the last few years. You know, I always thought he was like a flopper, um, you know, with those charges and the pain and all that stuff and his. Um, antics if you will but you know he's he's one of those players where you're gonna you're he's gonna you're gonna get his 100 percent each and every night and something i can commend and i think the celtics are gonna go out on this win 
Yeah, I mean, Marcus Smart's a guy who can guard every position on the One floor. That's five. that's it's that's ridiculous. why he won Defensive yeah. Player of the Year because he's such a good defender in that aspect. And I mean, it's it's not like the Celtics team is a team that's that's one-dimensional playing through one guy in this first game. Tatum had 31, but Brown had 23, and Smart and Horford both had 20. So they're getting scoring from a bunch of guys. They don't even have Robert Williams in the lineup. If this Nets team, if they, if they want to win this series, they have to have Kyrie and Durant both on the court, both playing extremely well. And that didn't happen in game one. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's going to happen in any game this series. But the, the Celtics, the Celtics can't guard both of them at once. Like you have to double team one of those guys to shut them down. They're that good players. But I, I think at the end of the day, this is the Celtics series to lose. We, they showcased that in game one. Kyrie needed a nearly perfect game for them to win that game. Just to stay in the game. Yeah, really. just to stay in the game. And I, I, I think that's what it comes down to. I mean. In game one, there were a lot of times where the Celtics went on, like, extreme runs and, like, the entire crowd was into it. And I would look down thinking they were up by, like, 10 or 12 points and it'd still be, like, a two- or four-point game. I was like, wow. They're really – their Boston team, I th- what I've noticed, they really pr- they really feed off of the crowd's energy, like, whether getting back into a game or extending a lead. And um, going into Brooklyn for games three and four, it's – I don't expect it to be as easy as it was in Boston, but I still expect them to... Oh, it certainly wasn't easy in Boston. Oh, yeah, no, even then, but, like, just with the crowd being on their side in that aspect, um, I think they're going to be able to steal a game in Boston. I mean, in Brooklyn, excuse me, and then wrap up the series. I think think in the same way that the Celtics feed off that crowd energy, I think Kyrie does the same thing. I mean, we saw him flip off the crowd three, four times in that game. He's going to get hit with a lot of fines. as, As much as I don't like the dude as a player... Or not mm-hmm. as a player, but like n- n- not even as a person. Like I, I respect a lot of the things he does, but he just, as a Celtics fan at heart, <laughs> I, I can't. I, it's in my blood to not like him. Yeah. <laughs> um. But yeah, he he was a dog in that game, and he's gonna be what keeps them in the series if they do. I have I have a stat here that I just want to throw out that I think you'll be impressed by, and that in the last twelve games, Jason Tatum has played against the Nets, excluding the one that he got injured in. He's averaged 33 points, 6.5 rebounds, 5 assists, a steal, and a block per game while shooting 50% and 42% from three. In that time, he's had two 50-point games, three 40-point games, and four 30-point games. The dude is disgusting. He eats on the nets. <laughs> I remember watching in that first quarter. He didn't have many points. Like He wasn't trying to force anything. He was trying to set up his teammates more, try to follow that hot hand. It was... Uh, it was definitely something that you wouldn't expect, but you wouldn't expect from seeing the final stat, which he, where he scored 31, he said? 31, you said? Yeah. Yeah, where he scored 31, you would have expected him to be getting cooking up one through four, but he really didn't really take off until like midway through the second quarter and then finished off in the final two quarters, and obviously with the game-winning layup as well. Yeah, I think it's just a well-balanced team. Yeah. They, they they can score from a variety of different areas, and that's that's why they're able to climb up to the two seed here. I wish there was a video of me on that last play of the game because I think I screamed so loud they could have heard me. And probably back in Maine, to be honest. <laughs> no, yeah, I was sitting there, and I, for some reason I was on my phone in the last ten seconds of the game, and I didn't even see the defensive possession leading up to the game-winning shot, which is even more incredible in that aspect. But I I heard you scream, and I looked up, and I'm like, oh no, they just won. <laughs> oh, oh, they just won. And I was, wasn't expecting it, to be honest with you, but... You I know. tweeted it, but all, I, I literally, I said to him like 10 minutes before that, I was like, the, the only thing I want to see today is I want a Jason Tatum buzzer beater on Kyrie. Right, that Kyrie, would make right. my day. And, and then cr- it happened. <laughs> yeah. And when, I remember you, 
I really wish that like I took a video of that, took a picture of it, like I mentioned to you at that game, because you know, you probably could have cashed out on quite a bit if you ask me. But <laughs> we don't do betting here. No, 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 no. We're only eighteen. We promise. Well, I'm nineteen, but that's besides All the point. Right. <laughs> we only got like fifty, probably, probably six or seven minutes left in this show, so I think. We're probably going to save the talk about the awards winners for another day. We'll kind of just probably break down next week who won, whether we thought they deserved to win. Yeah. Uh, but a- another topic that we wanted to touch on here was um, the the NBA play-in debate, whether we think that there should be play-in games going forward in the future. And I want to hear your thoughts on this, first of all. Yeah, I d- personally, I don't think that it should become a permanent change. Um, you know, we have – nobody wants to see the 9 and the 10 seed – in the playoffs, you know, a lot of times you'll see those 9, 10, 11 in seeds, they'll be below 500 and still have the opportunity to play in the playoffs. Like, you have an 82-game season where you can solidify yourself as the top eight teams like they've done in the past. And, like, I understand that at the end of the year, records in, like, the 8, 9, and 10 seeds can be very tight. But, like I said, you have those 82-game seasons to for a reason to, you know, go on those runs during the regular season to you know, get in that top six, seven, eight seeds. And I just don't think it's something that they're almost trying to give a award to teams that don't deserve to be in the playoffs. I I think it's a good idea. On the other hand, I think like and you mentioned this a little bit, those bottom four teams are often really tight record wise. And I think giving them these playing games, it's, it's, you, you see the, like the strength of schedule that these guys have. And for some of the teams, it, it weighs more for maybe the, the 9 10 seed than it does for the 7 8 seed. Mm-hmm. And they're on they're on the same caliber, or maybe even the 9 or 10 seed is a better team than them. And we can see that in playing. But the lower seed is going to make the playoffs just because they had a weaker schedule. And I like, I like giving them the chance to face off against each other. And in the same aspect, it also gives like these younger guys, these guys maybe on the Hornets or teams like that, the Pelicans the chance to get some semblance of a playoff experience slash, like, an atmosphere as they, like, move forward in their career. Even if they lose in the playoff game, they're like, oh, this is what it's like to play in the playoffs. playoffs yeah. This is this is something that I really want going forward. On the flip side, though, I would really hate it if this was in the NHL, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, when I was looking at this and, like, really trying to understand the playoffs and everything like that, if they don't, if, pe- if the teams that don't make the playoffs, they immediately get put into the lottery drawing at the next year's draft, which isn't honestly the worst case scenario, but I know every team wants to win the championship every single year. That's like everyone's goal. But maybe the question needs to be asked if they want to continue with the play in games, maybe they need to lower the amount of games played, maybe around like the 60, like 65 range instead of playing 82 games. I don't know if that's the best way to go because they played 82 games for so long. But I mean, I don't know. I just don't. I don't see the real reason for seeing the those like ten or eleven seeds or like those type of teams that don't necessarily haven't been able to show up and show out the entire season and given them the opportunity to go for the championship. I just don't understand it. I I would I would disagree with that sentiment, and I think I would also disagree with the idea of lowering the amount of games in a season. I feel like that it changes the record books a lot, and I I hate when the amount of games in a season are changed in any sport on a permanent level. I wouldn't want to see that happen here, and I, I personally, I think the play-in game should stay, but that's just my personal opinion. Yeah, it's... I don't know. It's... I I wouldn't be happy that the games would stay, but I could understand why pe- teams would want to play in tournament, like, for the reasons that you kept saying, like, it gives those young guys that those experiences to experience what a playoff game looks like so that way going into next season like oh yeah we want that feeling again 
but well, maybe know. maybe you give the the teams that are in the play-in and lose. You know, maybe you give them the the lowest two lottery picks, or you give them significantly lower odds to get higher picks, or something like that. That's the only really way, way I see you could see change in the rules in that aspect. But I think I think another thing that needs to be talked about with this is why don't the NBA call play-in games playoff games? Because right now they're not technically counted as playoff games. And I think that's the stupidest thing in the world because it's the definition of a playoff game. It's it's one game, one game yeah. when your season when your season continues, lose your season's over. I don't I know think, why they're not considered because, playoff games. I think it's because like it's just like a small. It's kind of like the in the March Madness where it's like the first four out and the first four in. But they still call those games like NCAA yeah. tournament in the, games. In the MLB, the wild card games are one game playoff games. Mm-hmm. Why isn't this the same thing? I don't know. It's it's a it's, it's kind it's, of a stupid discussion, but it's it's something that was irking me. Yeah, it. Yeah, I'm not 100 percent sure because like it's a if you think about it, it's really a tournament within itself. But you know, I mean, I don't know. Just my, I don't think that like a nine and ten seed. Could be should I mean I wouldn't say could be but should be awarded I guess the amount of like the opportunity to play in the playoff game if they're already those well, lower I, like I think seeds. it's formatted in a way that it gives the seven and eight seeds that they obviously have the better chance of making the playoffs they have two games to make it as opposed to one and I feel like yeah. <laughs> I feel like it's formatted really well and it it's just it it gives the league more. I don't know. I don't want to say marketing, but it gives them it gives them more things to market in terms of the playoffs, and I feel mm-hmm. like it's also just a good idea in terms of maybe the strength of schedule for one team is is a lot harder than a, than a different team that has a higher seed. So I think yeah, I think that's where that's just where I stand on the issue, and the, that's probably honestly where we're going to wrap up the yeah. show today. Yeah, I get that. Yeah, good way to end the show. Give a little hostile debate, if you will, even though it wasn't. We need very, more of that. Very on casual. Here. Yeah, we'll, we'll start bringing that back a little bit, or just bringing it. But, we don't uh, that, argue enough. Yeah, we don't. I would like to see us argue a little bit on the show. On the show. <laughs> but that's where we're going to wrap it up this week. We thank you guys for tuning in. Um, in the first 10 minutes, we had Oz Sailors on. Uh, you can check out the rest of our interview with our on Spotify. Coming out on Wednesday, uh, you can find us on Instagram at OverTheLedgeWQAQ and on Twitter at OverTheLedge981. We appreciate you. We'll be back next week with a... NFL draft preview with possibly a special guest. We'll see what happens. Might just have to tune in next week to find out. Cameron, any final words? See you all next week. We'll see you guys next week. Thanks for tuning in. So, you know, a lot of people trying to be like me, but, you know, you just can't be like me. Ooh. Love on. TV on the beat.